Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes or wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having name, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. Verse 16. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of the Lamb, or the great supper of our God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of strong men and the flesh of horses of of those who sit on them in the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who did the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had, to, who had received the mark of the beast and, whose, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and, the great, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is, the, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time. We'll stop there in our reading. Um, because uh, the next section opens up a different subject. But one doctrine rises above the landscape of biblical theology that serves as a beacon or as a banner to all Christianity, to all Christian hope in the midst of a fallen and sinful world, in the midst of a war-torn world. Many ask the question, will there ever be an end of war? They ask, will there ever be a day when sin is punished? Is there ever going to be a time when sin is completely vanquished? It's done away with? And the answer to these questions is a resounding yes. Uh, There is a day coming soon. The return of Christ is the anchorage for a sea-tossed soul. Christianity eagerly awaits the return of Christ. And the Christian's worldview is shaped by Uh, the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll give you three ways that will serve as three headings for us tonight to see how 
The return of Christ shapes our Christian worldview as we see the world around us, as we hear of wars and rumors of wars and, and circumstances like sin being paraded in the street. And here's this, these three ways that Christians have a worldview shaped by the return of Christ, how foundational it is. Number one is the obvious reason of hope. It is hope. Uh, we look to the return of Christ because it gives us hope. Number two is urgency. Urgency. When we consider the return of Christ, there is an urgency that uh, helps to mold and shape our thinking about the world around us. And an urgency, I mean by urgency with regard to evangelism. Every believer is an evangelist. Every believer is a minister of the gospel uh, in the sense that they are required and called to share Christ with the lost world around us. And number three, the third heading that shapes our worldview by considering the return of Christ would be final judgment. Final judgment. There will be a last judgment that's lasting and sure. And at this point in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, we teach that the, script, we teach that the scriptures teach uh, that the rapture of the church has already taken place. And I think that this is affirmed in chapter 19, that the rapture of the church has already happened seven years before this moment in Revelation chapter 19. So that rapture having already been passed prior to the seven-year tribulation period, it has, uh, the tribulation period has already come to an end. And Revelation 19 verses 11 through chapter 20 verse 3 mark that climactic moment in not only the book of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ does this stand as a mountain peak out of this book, um, but it is, it is a pinnacle moment in the entirety of universal history. Uh, in, uh, in reality, all things are moving to this end, uh, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, heading number one, with regard to the Christian's hope, we will see the names of Christ support the reason for our hope. The names of Christ support the reason for our hope. Notice how many times the name of Christ uh, in its various forms are mentioned in this section. Look at verse number 11. Then I saw heaven open, John says. Only Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1 records such, some similar phrases that he saw heaven opened. And if anyone has ever studied that opening chapter of Ezekiel, it's, it's amazing the things that Ezekiel sees. Uh, the crystal sea and above the crystal sea is the throne of God. And, and John says, I see heaven opened and behold a white horse. The imagery is astounding. The imagery is staggering. Uh, you can picture that he who sits on it is called, here's the first two names, faithful and true. And the reason that I separated them is not because of just the conjunction there, but he is referred to in two different circumstances. The Lord Jesus Christ is, returned, is mentioned as faithful and true. <clears throat> and one thing we see um, that it, at the onset here of chapter 19, verse 11, is that that Christ's return is a fact. It is a reality. He will literally return. But as we wade through the waters of chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, we're going to see that there's symbolism mixed with uh, a literal translation of these various events and uh, facts. So we need, to be able to we need to be able to discern what these differences in symbolism and, and literal translation are. Um, 
and as we'll see tonight, that no, this is not a literal white horse. As we will see later, that there are not horses in heaven. I hate to burst your bubble. There's no puppies in heaven, um, despite what so many would like to say. But we'll talk about that <clears throat> in, a, in, a, in a little bit. Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 24. If you don't want to follow me around to these various uh, cross-references, I will tell you <clears throat> that it would be a, a disservice to the text of Scripture for me not to mention at least some of these cross-references that John employs in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, because it is, it is just it's amazing how many cross-references are employed in this small section of Scripture with how climactic it actually is. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, there we read about Jesus teaching his, about his return, regarding his return. Matthew chapter 24, verse 27. Read there with me. For just as the lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's quite similar language that John writes in Revelation 19. But, verse 29 but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heavens or the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and when all the tribes of the earth, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the end of the sky to the other. This is further affirmation that this event has not happened yet. Christ has not, I think we can agree with that, that Christ has not returned as of yet. This is yet a future event. And that's another reason why we look at the book of Revelation with a futurist perspective, a futurist interpretation. In the Old Testament book of Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 12, again there we read of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the return of the, the Messiah. In similar language that Jesus just is recorded having said in Matthew chapter 27, 24. Uh, look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Jump across the page to Zechariah chapter 14 verse 1. Behold, this is a significant section of Old Testament scripture, by the way. The, the prophetic elements of Zechariah are remarkable. Behold, verse 1 of Zechariah 14, A day is coming for Yahweh when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Indeed, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city will go forth in exile. But those left of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as the day when he fights on a day of battle. And in, the day, in that day, his feet, pay close attention to this, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, 
and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to the west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will remove toward the north and the other half toward the south and you will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azeel. Indeed, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then Yahweh, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. And it will be in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle and it will be a unique day, which is known to Yahweh, neither day nor night, but it will be that at evening time there will be light. Verse eight. And it will be in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as winter. So there's a unique element here to the return of Christ. Quite clearly, Zechariah is referring to the return of Christ. But notice where Zechariah said that this will take place. John is seeing heaven, the heavens open, and he that is seated upon this white horse is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And he's returning to Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives. The heavens will be shaken. The stars will be darkened. It will be a cataclysmic event like this earth or the universe has never seen. It'll be lightning and thundering and light and shining brightness. And it will be the end of all grace. God will restrain his grace and the time of salvation will be over. Judgment has come. And we know that uh, the consistency of Scripture testifies of Zechariah telling us that the Mount of Olives will be the location in which Christ will return and the ascension took place at the Mount of Olives. And notice in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, I'll read it to you. And after he had said these things at the ascension of Christ, he was lifted up while they were looking on And a cloud received him out of their sight in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men or two angels in white clothing stood beside them. Verse 11, they they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So here John is standing in in Acts chapter 1. He sees Christ ascend into heaven. Um, There have been, it's a funny thing I was doing the other night. We were reading a children's story. And uh, the the way that the children's Bible ended, it ended on the, what was supposed to be the ascension of Christ. But it it depicted Christ staying on the ground and this cloud enveloping Christ. Jesus while he was on the ground and then he kind of disappeared in this mystical sense. And as I read that, I was thinking, what in the world was, did I just read? So you got to be a little bit discerning about uh, even children's stories that, that to try to depict truth and dumbing it down like dramatization of the gospel. You got to be very careful. Drama teams can be very dangerous. Um, people having degrees in drama for, for going into churches and sharing dramatic presentations of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is what God has ordained as a means of saving men and bringing the truth to the lost. I'm going back to uh, Revelation chapter 19, to the names of Christ. We noticed that he is faithful and true, this one who John sees. John sees the one who is faithful. How do we have hope? Is it because... You know, we are so faithful. Is it that somebody has to, you know, 
Um, whenever we hit adversities and in our circumstances and trials in this life, we all of a sudden, you know, we have to trust in what we have done, you know, some prayer that we've prayed, or do we look to the one who is faithful? You see, this first heading is that we have hope because Christ is faithful, not because somehow we are faithful. We have we have faith in Christ because he is the one who is faithful and he is true. I think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that says, No temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. Uh, but he is faithful um, to provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. Or He is the one that is sustaining his people. Um, God is faithful and he is true. Notice these words are capitalized. These are names of Christ. He is true in the sense of John 14, 6, that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then again in John chapter 1, we see that he is full of grace and truth. We rejoice and have hope because Jesus is true. He doesn't lie. If he told us that it was going to happen in the Old Testament, we can't detach from the Old Testament. We trust that he is true and what he says is going to happen is going to happen. In John 14, verse 1, um, let's look there. John 14, verse 1, Jesus tells his disciples. By the way, John 14, verse 1 is one of the rapture passages. One of the two New Testament rapture passages refer to the rapture. Jesus says in John 14, verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Why? Because he's true. He's truthful. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way, verse 4, you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? In verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through or by me. Precious promises. You see how our hope is so set on who Christ is. And he comes in the return in this final moment as he returns. By the way, when he raptured the church, he did not return fully. He returned. He came to the heavens. We met him in the air. And so there we are ever with the Lord. Um, but this is a full return of Christ that we're referring to here in Revelation 19. And in verse number 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or many crowns, Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. This is the same reference that John described in Revelation chapter 1. He saw him as the one that has his eyes filled with fire as a penetrating, all-knowing gaze of God. Uh, he has eyes of flame as of fire. It's symbolic language referring to Christ, his omniscience, and him being able to see everything. His head, on his head are many diadems. I love this. On his head are many crowns. You know, in a, in a conquering sense, the Old Testament refers to those who, kings who would go out and conquer. They would take the crown from the conquered king and put it on their own head above their own crown so that there would be multiple crowns upon the king's head as a sign of victory and as a sign of uh, defeat of this kingdom. Well, in this sense, when we read, what John is describing here is that Christ is wearing every crown. He is wearing every crown of every kingdom that has ever existed. He is the one who is supreme in authority. On his head are many crowns. He has them all because he is the rightful king and ruler. And as a name written, verse 12, 
on him which no one knows except himself. Aren't you? There's another point of our hope. Here's the second name. It's the name that we don't know. We don't know. There are just some things that we just don't know about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a precious truth. We can remind ourselves that, guess what? And I'm happy with this. And I think we need to do this more often. We need to tell ourselves, Deke, you just don't have it all figured out. You need to remind yourself that you just don't know it all. Uh, We have a lot of people who think they know it all today. We have a lot of people that think that they know everything there is to know about everything. And there would be a good reminder for us to say, you know what? I can promise you that I don't know everything there is to to know. And this is a reminder of that, that there are things about even the Lord Jesus Christ that we just don't know. Even a name that only he himself knows. Verse 13, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also the word of God. Oh, I just love that. I love that's the word of God. The Word personified. He is the living Word. He is the Word of God. This is not His blood. This is the blood of His enemies. This is the blood of judgment. This is the blood that marks the bloodbath about to come. This is the blood that's of judgment. You know, a while back, I think I was telling you guys about this, that there was, I received this book from Crossway. Uh, It was a box. It was a box of 200 copies of a book called Gentle and Lowly. And it was written by a man, his last name is Ortland. And I began reading this book with a friend of mine. You know, the friend, uh, he was here before, um, Eric Rasmussen. Some of you guys that have been here for a while, you know Eric. And Eric, uh, Eric and I set out to read this book together and essentially critique it. Because I wasn't going to give each one of you a copy of this book I'd never read before. I did a little bit of digging about the author. And I, I was kind of more or less on the fence regarding him and... Um, So I wanted to see what this book had to say for myself. And what I began to realize was that this man was essentially amplifying the attributes of Christ's gentleness and lowliness or meekness. He was amplifying these attributes, specifically with regard to Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through the end of that chapter. He was magnifying these attributes above and almost isolated from his wrath and judgment. So in a sense, he was separating the, to just summarize the book, he was separating the attributes of Christ. And about halfway through the book, I began to realize that what I was seeing here was a, someone who was, who was placing Christ's gentleness and lowliness above his justice and his wrath. You have no gentleness or meekness of Christ if you have no justice or wrath of Christ. And what we find here in Revelation chapter 19, you can't isolate the two, you can't isolate the attributes of God. You can't separate them. It's not like a pizza, a pizza where you get to cut it all apart and, and dissect the attributes of God. They, God is God in his entirety. You cannot isolate the attributes. And what we see here in Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to see a comparison in a moment, those precious truths regarding Christ's first advent are backed up by what's going to happen in his second advent. That he is coming to judge in a vesture dipped with blood. He is the word of God. I've already quoted to you from John chapter 1. But you can hear that again in John chapter 1. For in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice the personal pronoun that is attributed to 
the living word, the word of God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we're talking about Christ. He is the living word. This brings us to our second heading. The return of Christ produces an urgency in the followers of Christ. This produces an urgency in the followers of Christ. Here's the verse in verse 14 that we're going to examine a little bit. The armies which are in heaven. Notice, the armies which are in heaven. Well, how did they get there? I mean, are these just armies? Who are they? Is this just angelic armies, as so many would like to uh, ascribe to this section? Or is this angelic armies and all those saints who have died, that they are in heaven? Or is this the raptured church and angelic armies? I would say that these are all the saints who have, who have been raptured and have died up until this point with the angels. They are in heaven. They are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and they are following him on white horses. The rapture has already occurred. The rapture had occurred seven years prior to this moment, which is yet to come. Uh, we read of that, as I mentioned to you in John 14, 1, the second passage that talks about the rapture. You can look at this later. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I think this verse 14 in Revelation chapter 19 also affirms that the rapture has already taken place. Notice verse 15. These are angelic armies that are with him, and from his mouth, capital H, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now Christ is not riding on this literal white horse. He not, does not have a massive sword hanging out of his mouth. That's symbolic language. But be careful and remain consistent with your hermeneutic because if we just spiritualize everything in the passage, we end up losing sight of the fact that Christ is really coming again. So we must carry our consistent hermeneutic through this passage as in the beginning of the book of Revelation. Christ is not walking around with a massive sword hanging out of his mouth. Um, by the way, here the word for sword is in reference to a massive weapon. It's the largest of swords that you could get. It's a double-edged sword. Sometimes the word's even referred to as, in, in, uh, referred to with regard to a javelin. Um, it's, a, it's a huge weapon. It's a sword that is referring to the word of his power. He just speaks and it's victory. He just speaks and it's over. But why do we think that angels are with this army in heaven? coming as he has this sword in his mouth. Well, I think this is really important for us to grasp. Um, look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. You remember me teaching about the, the, the name for God, Lord Sebaoth? Does anybody remember, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 25, does anybody remember what the name, the Lord Sebaoth, is James actually use the, uses the direct Lord Sabaoth? Anybody remember what that means? It means Lord of warrior hosts. He is the Lord of armies. He's Lord Sabaoth. He is, he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. 
one thing again that we must not separate from Christ's gentleness and lowliness is that he is a conquering warrior. Our Christ is a warrior. And he's victorious. In Matthew chapter 25, if you look at verse 31, Jesus is teaching here and he says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Consistent? Yes. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Why? Because after this, he establishes his millennial kingdom where he reigns and rules over the nations with the saints. He's coming again, and he's going to be sitting on his throne, but he's coming with his angels. So there's, we know that these armies are, does consist of at least the angels. In uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we also have a passage that, sa- that backs up the fact that this is angels coming with the Lord Jesus at his return. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse number 7. To give rest to you who are afflicted and to us as well at the revelation or the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. See, these little truths are found all throughout the New Testament. If I were to take you to every single cross reference that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 19, we could be here for weeks. It's remarkable. It's profound how consistent the word of God is. But since you're in 2 Thessalonians, just jump back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Yeah, you know who wrote that? Yeah, you know what's him that is? A mighty fortress is our God. And he sings about the Lord Sabaoth. Sabaoth, yeah. Yeah, I could be saying it wrong. Uh, but. <laughs> But it, it's the Lord of Warrior Hosts. It, it is really the, the Lord of Warrior Hosts. Look at first, the good point, Carl. Alex is actually trying to learn that on the organ. He's trying to learn a mighty fortress is our God. But he, he played it, but he, he wants to practice some more. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. Not only is Christ going to return with his angels in this angelic army, or this, uh, this, this army of heaven, will consist of angels in verse 13, so that he may strengthen your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and the Father and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. With all his saints. Uh, Go from there if you don't mind chasing me around. Look at Jude chapter 14. Jude verse 14. There's only one chapter in the book of Jude. Jude verses 14 and 15. And Enoch, verse 14 of Jude, in the seventh generation from Adam also prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So the holy ones there can refer to angels, but I believe it also refers to the saints that will be coming with Christ. Okay, uh, back to Revelation chapter 19. We see a couple references here that uh, just a mi- quick mention about the fact that these are described as coming on horses, that Christ is depicted as being on a white horse, that saints are following him on white horses before we get to verse 15. 
As I mentioned, this is symbolic of a conquering king, especially in Roman times, that a conquering king would come back triumphant on his white charger, and he would walk into the city. His armies would lead him or precede him, and, and they would actually precede the king with all of his captured foes. Usually they would bind the king of the conquered kingdom, and they would drag him through the streets if they hadn't killed him already. And the conquering king would ride upon this white horse in victory as rose petals would rain down from the city walls and various different circumstances. Trumpets would be blasting. There would be a great celebration at this return of a victorious king. And that is the language that John is using with regard to the coming of Christ, that he's coming as a victorious king. This is symbolic of his victory over all men, and he is coming in judgment. This does not mean that we get to expect to ride Mr. Ed at the return of Christ. This, neither does this give grounds for us to think that somehow there's animals or pets in heaven. And uh, you may be saying, oh, well, you know, I think that we can beg to agree to disagree. And I've met theologians who have much, they're much more, they're much more intelligent than I am, who, uh, uh, Derek Thomas, actually, he believes that there are animals in heaven. I don't know where he finds gr- grounds for that. But the reason I do not believe that animals are in heaven, um, not that I don't like animals, I love animals, I love our awesome little smelly dog that's at the house, but um, animals are a grace gift to us from God that help to offer companionship and friendship, Um, but they are not created in the image of God. They are not created in the image of God. They do not have a soul. Are they intelligent? Yes, they are, Um, but they do not have the capacity for relationship with God. They do not have the capacity for regeneration. Um, There is not a they were not designed with the intent of fellowship with Christ. Um, that is one of the major reasons as to why I do not think or feel that there are animals in heaven. The second reason I do not believe that there are angels in heaven because the notion is utterly pagan. It, it is associated with predominantly paganism, um, especially with the idea of Buddhism. And reincarnation, and the and the desire, the thought that somehow we uh, we come back in this form of another animal. You know, if you had a good life and you were part of the lower caste and you die, then you get to come back as a squirrel and you live, you know, higher in a tree or something, and then the squirrel dies and then you're reincarnated into a monkey and et cetera, et cetera. So Buddhists actually teach that you know your dead ancestor could be that cow, or could be that animal. So there's some sort of spiritual connection there. And so the, the idea that animals are somehow in heaven is, is ultimately pagan um, in its origins. And uh, really there's no grounds at all in the scriptures. Aside from everybody likes to quote chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, and they, they miss the whole fact that Christ is coming back, and they say, hey, look, there's horses in heaven. Um, sorry, that's not what the point is. The point is to mention to us that Christ is coming as a victorious king, and he is ruler over all. So here's the second heading that I mentioned already, is the urgency. Urgency because the time is near. Even though we, the next event on Christ's prophetic calendar, is the rapture of the church, we nevertheless, we have an urgency, as we look to the return of Christ, we have an urgency to tell others about the gospel. We have an urgency to reach the lost. There's a there's a sense in which, you know, we've all said this, um, and we say this kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek. We, we say this with a little bit of a sense of anticipation. We say, if the Lord tarries, 
You know, we like to say that, you know, we'll make plans, but Christ may return or we may be raptured or whatever. There's a sense in which our worldview is shaped by the urgency, the eminence of the return of Christ. And therefore, we operate that way almost daily. We think about that. That influences our decision-making daily. We, we're constantly, as believers, we're constantly fixated on the coming of Christ because it's a precious reality of the hope that we have in him. And it gives us this sense of urgency to reach the lost. That's why whenever we miss an evangelistic opportunity at the gas station, at the restaurant, or at the grocery store, wherever it may be, we walk away saying, oh man, Lord, I hope there's another day that you send someone to reach them if they're lost. Um, and forgive me for not being more urgent with the gospel message. Um, and by way of closing in these final minutes here, I, I would like to just, I know we didn't make it very far, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to just burn through this, okay? I want to give you the, the beauty, the richness, the depth of, of how profound this section of Scripture is. Let's close with verse 16, and this will just again be under the heading of urgency. He's coming, in the middle of verse 15, that he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of god the almighty and he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords i I have to be honest with you the rulers of this world have no idea what's coming they are clueless There may be a sense in which they have the sense of guilt that accompanies any sinner. There's a sense of guilt that every sinner knows that they are a lawbreaker. And there's this sense in which those who rule know that they're operating outside of the directed mandate of God Almighty. When they are sinning against Him and what He has called and ordained them to do, they they know that they are being disobedient. They know that judgment is coming. And when we read the pressing of the wrath of the rage of God in the wine press, how many of you have ever seen those individuals who have the wine barrels in the olden times? They'd fill that with uh, the grapes and someone would trudge through them with their bare feet. Those grapes are popping They're popping and bursting. This is a nice way of saying that when Christ returns, human beings are going to be popping and bursting like grapes in a wine vat. There is going to be judgment and destruction like the world has never seen. There is going to be a wrath, a pouring out of the wrath of God. It will all come unhinged. And we don't have to lift a finger. Christ's speaks in a moment and the victory is his and it's done and it's over it's it's profound but there's a sense in which this urgency we see and we read every christian in the world when you read king of kings and lord of lords there's this sense in which i don't know about you but there's this sense in which when i read that i just get this like yeah that is my god There is this boldness that rises up within me to say, that's my king. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. No one can touch him. No one will knock him off his throne. He reigns. He is supreme. He is in control. There is no king in this world that can even hold a candle to King Jesus. They may may play around with their little war games. They They may think that they have the power. 
but God is going to wipe them off the mat like the dust on a scale. He just needs to speak, and it's done. It's over. They're going to pop like grapes. And God will punish the injustice that we've seen today and in our generations and the time leading up to this. By way of closing, I want to give you seven comparisons between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ that we've learned up until this point in verses 11 through 16. These seven comparisons that we find in the New Testament. In the first advent of Christ, he comes as an infant. In the second advent, he's coming as glorified, risen Son of God. In the first advent of Christ, he came in a manger. In the second advent of Christ, he's coming as a warrior. He's coming as a conqueror. In the first advent of Christ, we see him riding on a donkey. Lowly. Riding up the back of the Temple Mount. In the second advent of Christ, he is seen coming on a white charger as a victorious king of kings. In the first advent of Christ, he is crowned with a crown of thorns. In the second advent of Christ, he has every crown upon his head. He has them all upon his head. In the first advent of Christ, his glory was veiled in the sense that it was set aside. He set aside his heavenly glory and took on human flesh and walked among us in the dusty streets of Palestine. In the second advent of Christ, his glory is unveiled. Everything about the risen Savior is going to be made known. And as in Zechariah chapter 10 Uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they will mourn as they look on the one whom they have pierced. Just imagine the moment when they see King Jesus coming and the whole world says, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. There's no escaping. They're going to cry out for the mountains to fall on them. And they can't escape him. He's going to look at them with his fierce, burning eyes. There's no hiding. There is no restraint. There's no more grace. There's there's no more mercy. It is over. It is judgment. In the first advent of Christ, he came to bear wrath. Isn't that precious? He drank every single drop of the wrath of God on behalf of his people. And he came to do that with the purpose of the Father. He came to bear the wrath of sinners. In the second advent, he's coming to bring the wrath. And he's going to bring it like the rain. It's going to be like something this world has ever seen. Something so cataclysmic that the stars go out. It's going to shake the universe. In the first advent of Christ, he brought grace and truth. In the second advent... He brings judgment and war. It's all over. All this this injustice that we see in the world, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, all of these different just sinful spatting that we see around, it's all going to be gone. It's going to be gone. He's just going to speak over. Done. That's the power of our king. How do we not have hope in him? How, how, do, how, is it that we, how is it that we could ever despair? The only reason that I can see that we would fall into despair was when we lose sight of the hope that's in Christ.
When we fall into despair, it could be one of two reasons. One, we're distracted. We have our priorities off. Or two, we're on the wrong side. We're on the losing team. The losing side. This is why we have a sense of urgency. We plead with people to come to Christ. To have their eyes opened. To repent of their sin. And look to the risen Savior. As Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son lest He be angry. Kiss the Son lest He be angry. Why would He be angry? Because you're against Him. You're against Him. You have spit upon Him. You have mocked Him, hit Him with reeds, laughed at Him and laughed at His people. You've killed His, his, his preachers. You've killed His sheep. He's angry. And He's coming to pop the resistance like grapes. So, I don't know about you, but when I read King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it gets me, it gets me excited. It gets me happy. And I rejo- rejoice in the Lord. You think of the Hallelujah Chorus. 